We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly interview show where top chess players, authors, content creators, and accomplished amateurs discuss their careers and share stories and chess improvement tips. Perpetual Chess is a part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network, and we'd like to give a special thanks to our presenting chess education sponsor, Chessable.com. For more information about the show, you can go to perpetualchesspod.com. But without further ado, let's get to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess, Chess Books Recaptured. This is a periodic, used to be monthly, might be monthly again someday, probably not next month, but periodically we get together and we talk about what is often a classic chess book. I'd say this this month's quote-unquote month's selection uh, fits the criteria, and we are joined by a returning guest, longtime friend of the pod. He is This is, will be his sixth appearance on Perpetual Chess. He's a highly respected cognitive scientist with a PhD from Harvard, the co-author of the New York Times best-selling book, The Invisible Gorilla, with fellow chess player Daniel Simons. He's also a USCF master. Uh, he published the award-winning American Chess Journal and a few chess books. He's a chess dad, a chess bibliophile, and most importantly, the co-author of the forthcoming book, Nobody's Fool, Why We Get Taken In and What We Can Do About It, coming July 2023. If, you'd, if you've enjoyed our guest appearance on the show, you might want to pre-order that book. But without further ado, let's welcome back Dr. Christopher Shabri to the show. Welcome, Chris. 
Hi, good to be here for the sixth time. Am I the record setter now or is somebody still ahead of me? I think you might be tied. I don't know, but I won't um I won't verbally go through it and uh stutter through it <laughs> okay. for minutes and torture people, but you're you're in the conversation, which is all we can really ask for. Okay. And <laughs> and we do greatly appreciate it. I know that you're a busy guy. You've been finishing this book, so all the more appreciated. Um, and the book we settled on, San Luis 2005, From Quality Chess, um, by Alik Gershon and Igor Noor. Um, so, Chris, did you have any background with this book? I know we batted around a few ideas once you uh, volunteered to do this as you finished your book. Um, I have heard of this book a number of times and it's been recommended to me as sort of one of the great tournament books of all time and one of the great tournaments of all time uh, as well. And I, I have a lot of other tournament books, although I'm by no means a, a collector. So it, it occurred to me that I didn't think you would really cover too many tournament books in the, in the series. Also, most of the books are memoirs or improvement books and, and so on. And tournament books have a a sort of exalted place among chess book collectors, I think. There are people who really are connoisseurs of tournament books per se and think that they're sort of like a high art form when it comes to chess books. Uh, so I thought it would be interesting to to look at one of those. And I know you you talked about um, the, the most famous one of all, Zurich 1953, on a, a previous um, episode, I think. And I didn't, didn't you know, I, I thought of New York 1924 also, but I don't really like that one as much as everybody else does. So this really seemed like it was really highly thought of and I had never cracked it open before. So why not? Yeah, I was sort of in the same boat. I've, again, New York 1924, highly praised. I have not read the whole thing. I know Jesse Cry is a big fan. I actually did check it out a little bit just to sort of see what the hype was about. And it looked good. Um, I read the first chapter, but maybe some future pod. But for this one, I was in the mood for something more contemporary. And like you, I've uh, I've heard rave reviews for this book. And it's one of those books that was sitting on my shelf anyway. I bought it at some point. Um, so I thought, why not... Um, why not read it? And it is interesting from a historical perspective, um, from a World Chess Championship perspective, um, because because of what was going on at the time. I mean, it was such a unique time. What are your memories of those early 2000 uh, controversial World Championship periods, Chris? So my memories of that period in chess is that I had sort of stopped playing seriously by the late 90s. I think 1998 was my last tournament for 15 years. And so in the early 2000s, I was sort of paying attention as a consumer of news more so more than someone who went through all the games as they were being played and so on the way I had been before. Um, so I sort of had vague memories of the news of, of what was going on and the complexities of the world championship cycle and the reunification attempts at the world championship, which were very intensive then. And Kasparov retiring was really the big news of 2005 in my mind, because he was the most important player of, of my life, uh, except for Bobby Fischer, I guess. Um, uh, and uh, so I didn't really know that much about it. I had to go back and, and re-examine what the history was and, and how this tournament came about and why the players who were in it were in it and, and why the ones who weren't in it weren't in it. Uh, and it was a, it's kind of an interesting story, like what the role of this tournament was in the whole long process of bringing the world championship back to one, you know, one person, to one uh, lineage. Yeah, exactly. And I was in a similar boat, obviously checking the headlines and stuff, but wasn't following chess as closely as I have been since this podcast started uh, back in those days. And we might as well catch listeners up uh, for any newer chess fans or 
people who are a little hazy on the details, but basically um, Kasparov uh, started a sort of rival faction to FIDE in the 1990s. So for a while, instead of there being undisputed world champions, there were disputed world champions. Um, and then uh, Kramnik had beaten Kasparov in 2000 and defended his title against Lako in 2004. Uh, this is the Kasparov auspices title. And meanwhile, FIDE has switched their formats to knockout tournaments um, for the world championship, which is a subject of some controversy. Sometimes you'll you'll hear people say that the people who won that, like Alexander Kalifman and Ruslan Panamaryev, um, and uh, Kazim Janov, who participated in this tournament, you'll hear you know armchair critics say that they're not real champions. I, to me, that's not our role as chess fans to say, but they're not classical champions. This was a knockout tournament, a very different format than we're used to with the matches. Uh, so this was the continuation of that. Um, but the idea, as Chris said, is that they're going to unify, hopefully, um, after the match. So um, out of the top 15 players in the world, Kramnik de declined to participate because he already considered himself the world champion. Um, and Kasparov, of course, uh, was no longer playing, even though his rating would still be uh, on the top of the list. Uh, was there anyone else missing amongst the top players? Um, I think there were a couple, but not for nefarious reasons. I, I don't think. I think they mostly just went down the rating list to substitute um, to substitute people. So I think Judith Polgar was in the top ten at that time, which is how she got into this eight-player tournament because she was uh, she was. Um, one of like the first reserve, you know, to, to get in. Um, it's interesting that Kazim Janov and Adams were in because they were the finalists in that knockout tournament the year before. Right. Um, that, that's how they got in. Uh, and um, it was quite a, quite a strong, quite a strong tournament. I, I sort of view it kind of like a candidates tournament almost, even though it wasn't, but it's very much the structure of it. It's an eight player double round Robin, just like the candidates tournaments we have nowadays so it's a long tournament but there aren't too many games going on at once and it it seems like overall a pretty fair test of of strength given what you can accommodate nowadays you can't have 30 round tournaments anymore like they like they would do you know 100 years ago or something so it's a it's a reasonable format and a, a very a very strong list of players i think Spiddler was maybe another, another one who sort of came off the reserve list um to uh, to get yeah. in Spiddler was number seven at the time um but yeah to, to your point about the candidates tournament one thing that it ended up serving exactly that function because, of course, uh, Topalov won the tournament and then did ultimately have the reunification match with Kramnik in 2006, which, of course, Kramnik won. So it it had very controversial with the toilet gate that was a uh, that we discussed in some recent cheating pods and and there's cheating in this story as well as we will get or alleged cheating I should say um, as well but just to to name the participants as we mentioned uh, Topalov who was ranked number three at the time uh, Vaswanathan Anand who was number two Svidler number seven Alexander Morzevich number fourteen Peter Lako uh, number four. Rustam Kazimzhanov, as Christopher said, number 35, so lower by rank, but but he qualified through the prior world championship. Michael Adams, number 13, and Judith Polgar, who was number eight, and a bit off form. Actually, we briefly discussed this in my interview with Mikhail, with Mikhail Marin, who was there with her as her second. Uh, she had just had uh, a child, and this was her first time competing in about a, uh, a year and a half. Um, so that rounded out the field, and yeah, it was... Um, it was interesting tournament took place in in a town and like sort of um 
not very booming town, about 200,000 people in central Argentina. The tournament was in the same place as the hotel, and you've got the FIDE delegation there, the player delegation, the coaches delegation. And when you read, I, I of course, never got the opportunity to to attend a tournament like uh, Linares in Spain, but uh, Dirk Anton Guzendam has like a great collection of essays about that. And you get this sort of... Um, cloistered feel as you read about these tournaments where it's like it's in kind of a i mean all due respect to these beautiful towns but kind of a random place you know and the venue and the um place where they're staying are the same it's almost like a setup for like a murder mystery you know where like everyone's so close together and in each other's stuff and for a you know world-class chess tournament to happen under those circumstances i always find like i'm sure what goes on behind the scenes is just as interesting as the chess itself I haven't experienced playing at that level, of course, but it seems to me that they, there are sort of two kinds of places where you have these tournaments. One is a major city, like world championship matches have been in New York, London, Moscow, um, uh, Bonn, you know, places like that. And then you've got sort of like these obscure little towns like Linares, which for quite a while was the most famous place in chess, I think is a pretty much tiny town where, again, everybody stays in the same hotel, like they sit across the room from each other at dinner and you know, and so on, or, or Vikonze, which I don't think is a teeming metropolis. Right. Um, but now, you know, the number one, sort of the number one tournament in the world. But then you've got St. Louis, you know, so there, there's sort of like this this history and, and many famous tournaments, I think, are, are we, we know that, you know, are in obscure places like Cambridge Springs. You know, I, I live in, I live in Pennsylvania. Nobody even knows about Cambridge Springs here in Pennsylvania where it is. Right. Uh, you know, so um and and you're you you're from Pennsylvania, I think. I, I don't I bet you never went to Cambridge Springs. I've never been. Yeah, I've been to a lot of places in Pennsylvania. Like, but it's got a tournament and a defense, you know, like that's, you know, yeah. so um so yeah, I think it's an interesting um it's really interesting to think about the psychological, you know, atmosphere of these events and things like the proximity to the other players and um, I think there are pros and cons, right? If you're in a, in a city, um, it seems like they cloister themselves just as much, right? For, I was reading in the Anon files that they would be playing in a major city, but they would basically just hole up in the hotel and go to the same restaurant every day or something right, like yeah. create their own little, you know, cloistered space for themselves as a team or something. Anyhow. Yeah, it does still f f seem like it would feel different when you're just all in the same venue, like Nigel Short alludes to in the introduction. Um, he wrote an introduction and uh, Michael Marin also wrote a forward or it might be the other way around in terms of introduction versus forward. But anyway, he talks about how like the first day he's not sure who to eat with and he ends up eating with uh, the Bulgarian contingent with uh, Topalov and uh, his team. And because he does that the first day, he ends up doing that every day and it becomes a superstitious thing. But you can, you the whole sort of dining hall atmosphere, people eating together, but not necessarily breaking bread. Um, definitely adds to the lore. And of course, we should say the book is absolutely beautiful. I mean, one downside of this book is uh, I couldn't find an e-version. It's not on forward chess um, okay. and and quality chess doesn't do Kindle. Um, so you got to pony up for this book. It's like 40 or 50 bucks, but it's, um, you, you know, as with quality chess books, the paper is beautiful and there's tons of photos, both of the players in competition and of the town. And it's really sort of evocative of like, yes, they're kind of in this random hotel in, um, not a, um, mega center of Argentina, but at least it was the, the weather looks nice and it looks quite, uh, picturesque on the bright side. Uh, the book is printed on on heavy paper, even heavier than the current quality chess books, which have sort of achieved this high quality but thin paper. So this this is heavy. Like you could do like some exercise 
with this book, just, just lifting it up. And uh, it is really nicely done. And those pictures, those photos are color, by the way, and they're almost every couple of pages. There's a, a great color photo. Sometimes it's a close up of something. Often it's the players and interesting expressions while they're playing the games or analyzing or whatever it is, is really beautifully done. Yeah. So big fans of the book, both of us, I think it's safe to say. Uh, we'll get into the authors in a bit more about the context of the book as well as uh, the tournament itself uh, after we get back from this break. Perpetual Chess is brought to you in part by Chessable.com. Chessable is the leading chess education platform known for its proprietary move trainer technology, which uses space repetition to help you remember stuff. What kind of stuff? Well, tactical patterns, opening sequences. It can even help you drill specific end games. And of course, they have a huge library of courses to help you do that. They have courses both from prominent grandmasters like uh, Grandmaster Jordan von Forrest, Magnus Carlsen, Sam Shanklin. And they also have great material for cl for club players, from club players. They have stuff for purchase, stuff you can check out for free. So be sure to go to chessable.com and check out what they have that is new. You should know what that sound means. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify and the moment another business dream becomes a reality. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. So whether you're selling chess courses, chess boards, or something totally unrelated to chess, Shopify simplifies selling online and in person so you can focus on successfully growing your business. It covers every sales channel, whether it's in-person point of sale system or an all-in-one e-commerce platform platform. It even lets you sell across social media like TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, packed with industry-leading tools ready to ignite your growth. It gives you complete control over your business. And thanks to 24-7 help and an extensive course library, Shopify is there to help you every step of the way. What's incredible to me about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify is there to empower you with the confidence and control to revolutionize your business and take it to the next level. So now it's your turn to get serious about selling to Shopify. So sign up for a $1 a month trial period, shopify.com slash chess by using the code chess. You know that they came from perpetual chess. So that's shopify.com slash chess to take your business to the next level today. And we are back and we should discuss the authors a bit because I actually, other than having heard of this book, I was not familiar with either one of them, uh, Grandmaster Alec Gershon and Igor Noor, who is about 2260 Fide, both of them from Israel. Uh, Chris, did you have any familiarity with these gentlemen? I, I feel like I've heard of Gershon before, maybe just because he's a Grandmaster. So I've seen his name various places, but this is the most famous book I can think of where the authors have no fame at all or in their not, you know, not associated with it. We know My System is by Nimzovich and Zurich 1953 is by Bronstein and, uh, and, and so on. And this one is, is, is odd in that way. I, I, I never really thought about it too much until we started talking about doing this book. So I went and looked them up because I wanted to see what else they had done. And as you know, I found that they had not done any other books before or since this one, which kind of surprised me because this one is so good. You imagine like someone who does things that are so good, they must you know, they must do more. But this is really a one hit wonder of, of chess books. Yeah, I 
you know, and obviously we talked about this a bit as we were prepping for this pod because I had a similar experience. So we did do some research. We found an old article on Chessbase uh, that was published a few years after the book came out. By the way, we should have said this book won the ECF book of the year in 2007 unanimously. Um, so obviously we're not the only ones uh, that are fans of this book, but basically the backstory was that they were both wor- uh, working as sort of chess reporters in Israel. Um, Gershon was running an Israeli chess website and they just decided to sort of cover the tournament in real time. And it, they were issuing these bulletins in real time. These of course uh, are kind of, you know, early two thousands, the internet was firmly a thing, but uh, obviously not of the scope and uh availability that that it is now and bandwidth i should say that it is now um but basically they were just getting a lot of viewers and people were amazed by the quality of it and eventually they decided to turn it into an english language book with uh with quality chess yeah and um i think they they say that they although they did a lot of work during the match there's only so much you can do overnight, uh, you know, between rounds or something like that, effectively making bulletins, sort of like tournament bulletins, but but very deep ones. So the work in the book is much expanded and revised and edited by the quality chess team and uh, and so on. I don't recall whether they mentioned the extent to which they used computers to check their analysis, because in 2005, 2006, 2007, we're just on the precipice, I think, of computers being really an everyday tool. Um, for people. Do you remember what they said about computers or if they said anything? Uh, I don't remember offhand. Yeah. No. Um, I don't think I, they men- mentioned it. Yeah. I So there are lead chess studies with the games um, as as is my custom. I didn't use a chess set to go through the games um, and I think it was you who had sent me one of them Chris. So you can call up the study and play through the moves on the computer which is what I did. Um, I didn't uh, check the engine as much as I sometimes do in terms of like evaluating the author's analysis. I was generally quite impressed with the, I felt like it was um, detailed but not over the top like basically the appropriate level of analysis and to the extent I did check for errors I mean of course there's a, stronger engines are always going to reveal more things but I mean it, there was obviously a lot of care put into uh to the analysis um, I didn't do that I didn't do that kind of checking but um they, they they worked so hard on it and I think the real it's an interesting book because there's a deep analysis in the book and so Deep analysis from 2005 is bound to have mistakes when tested against how well we can do in 2023. But for me, the more interesting part of the book was the little lessons that they embedded in the games. I don't want to say they're lessons like didactic things with quizzes and so on, but they have very um, eloquent explanations of certain positions and openings and structures and even some of the psychological aspects as well, like why did, you know, why did someone play this move right now, maybe the, the, you know, the results of the round before the tournament standing and so on. They really weave that stuff together in, in a, a quite a nice way, I think. So regardless of like a few suboptimal, you know, lines, I don't think it loses any value. Yeah, I agree. And it, it, it it's evident because, um, you know, this was not the most suspenseful tournament. I mean, Topalov ran rough shot over the field in the first half, six and a half out of the first seven. And he basically coasted the rest of the way. I mean, there was a moment where like, if he, I think it was like, if he lost to black with Svidler in like the penultimate round or something, it would have been tied something like that. But, uh, but overall, I mean, he just was in cruise control the whole way. So, you know, when, when I talked about Zurich 1953 with FM Nate Solon, a uh, friend of the pod and got to interview Andy Soltis, we were saying like, 
you know, the Nidorf, the, there's two Zerk 1950, well, more than two, but we discussed two. There are um, several. Yeah, but the, the Nidorf book talks a little more about the standings than the Zurich book. This one, the standings, I mean, they do do a nice job setting the stage for each round. And as you say, they, in addition to the annotations of the game, they sort of describe the context of the game before each round. But you don't get this for like the suspense of who's going to win the tournament. I mean, obviously, looking backward, you're going to know anyway. But it was not like it wasn't. That's not what makes this a great book. Yeah, it was an amazing victory by Topala of a point and a half ahead of the rest of the field. And it's rare it's rare to win a candidates tournament, which is, you know, again, the format of this and the level of competition, right, by that by, by that much, right? Usually it's a point or, or sometimes less, or even Magnus Carlsen didn't even win the candidates tournament, you know, by aside from tie breaks when he qualified to, to play the world championship. So an amazing performance by Topalov. And there's a sentence in the book, uh, somewhere marveling at how inconceivable it is that he could score six and a half out of the first seven rounds. But then, of course, Caruana scored seven out of the first seven rounds in an you know, equally strong tournament in 2014 and, and beat Topalov twice <laughs> in, right. in doing it. So um, it, it can be done, but uh, I think um, I, I can imagine how hard it must have been for Anand and Mose um, Fiddler ultimately tied for second with uh, Anand for them to try to come back after that opening performance. Yeah, and again, that sort of standout performance is why we're going to tease again that there there were accusations that Topalov was getting some sort of assistance um, that are mentioned both in the book. You can find stuff on the internet, and um, we're, we're going to leave that as a tease to keep you guys tuned in. We'll, we'll get into all the drama later, but a couple other things. Um, w- w- I did want to chase down um, what the authors are up to these days because, as, as Chris alluded to, um, they're they're not they don't seem super active they haven't written other books so uh, we interviewed i mean i emailed um Jakob Agard, of course who had a hand in publishing this and he said that uh that gershon i believe it is yeah has vanished into thin air is his quotes um if you look up his wikipedia page he broke the record for the largest simul in 2010 played 523 people. But other than that, he doesn't have a big online profile. But I did find that he's still playing in an Israeli league. And so is uh, Igor Noor, who Agar says became a successful computer whiz. So they're both still playing chess, uh, but they haven't written anything um, since then. But, you know, maybe they'll uh, reunify for some tournament book. And then to the topic of tournament books, um, there haven't been as many in recent years. Um, And what you hear if you uh, read forums like the chess, uh, the Facebook chess book collectors group. They always say tournament books don't sell. Uh, so I asked uh, uh, GM Agard if that was true in his experience as a publisher, and he unfortunately confirmed it. Said they don't have any current plans to publish uh, future tournament books, but he wouldn't rule it out. But it's kind of kind of a bummer, isn't it? Yeah, um, I, I I sort of see the point because I'll have to confess it was it was hard for me to go through this book. Um, mm. And despite the fact that I knew that it, I, I, I went through some of the games and the, anal- the annotation is incredible and the players are great and I'm interested in the opening. So there was really nothing deterring me. It wasn't like it was a whole book full of, I don't know, Queens Indians or something like that. you know, and I didn't, you know, I just was, was, was going to somehow feel like I didn't like the openings, but for some reason it's, it's hard to go through this kind of book. Um, and, but I think you get a lot out of it if you do, uh, because um, 
Well, you know, and can I ask you a quiz question, Ben, about the tournament? Well, while we're here, this will help me with my with my argument about 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 the book. Sure. This is an easy one. What opening was played most often in this tournament? Hmm. I mean, the Sicilian doesn't count, right? The broad Sicilian. The Sicilian, sure. No, that's good. That's good enough. The Sicilian was played in, in 25 out of 56 games, okay. which is a huge, a huge percentage. And in fact, 50 out of 56 games were 1E4. So if you're a 1E4 player, you know, or a Sicilian player or whatever, that, you know, this, this is incredible. It's true that the variations they were playing in 2005 are not exactly what are played at the top level now, but still you've got, you know, Nidorf variations, Feshnikov, um, and, and the, the structures, you know, are timeless. Um, and the themes are timeless, even if it's not exactly the way they're playing it, uh, playing it nowadays. But for some reason, the fact that it was a book on a tournament rather than a book on like how to play the, the night or, or, you know, um, something like that, just it's, 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 it's hard. It was, it was hard for me to sort of think, oh, I should really be like studying this as opposed to studying something else or, you know, doing whatever I might do to try to get better. So, but I think it was that that's a mistake because there's a lot, there's an incredible amount you can learn from, from studying this stuff, even if it doesn't, if it doesn't seem like the most intuitive way to learn. Um, yeah. It's still a great, it's still a great way. And the annotations are so good that it's, you'll learn more from this than most tournament books or most games collections, I think. Yeah, no, but it's a good point. I hadn't thought about it, but if I weren't doing this podcast on it, I would have been, I mean, first of all, I've had this book and all it's done is sit on my shelf. I, I've never even looked at it, but I think it's proper place would be like, it's like a coffee table book. Like, you know, it would be nice to have out and pick up and just look through once in a while. But, um, I guess part of the issue why these books may not sell is, um, as you say, if your if your primary goal is to improve at chess, um, you this probably wouldn't be your first choice. And I've got a quote from Agard about that um, in a minute. And even if you're interested in chess history, like it takes a certain level of diligence. Where if you're getting out the chess set and you're reading, I mean, there's there's a lot of games in this very extensively annotated. I mean, Chris and I have been working on this for months. Um, so yeah, there's no um, there's no automatic target audience, and especially like with the the classics, the New York 1924s and Zurich 1953s and World Championship 1948s. I mean, you're covering stuff that was not covered in real time as much, and like there's you can learn so much historical info, which as we alluded to, that was some motivation for us, but it's contemporary enough where it's not um, not as big a driver, I would think for a lot of people. Um, well, anything we, to add before I read the Agard quote, uh, Chris? We have live coverage now on, essentially we have TV shows that show you every move of every game of tournaments like this and analyze them in real time and so on. That was, that, that was like a dream even in the seventies, uh, you know, where they would do it for the world championship match, maybe, <laughs> you know, and, and, and they, they, in a very hokey format and, and so on. So tournaments, I think are well followed that way. Um, and uh, I think, you know, the, the new, to me, like the interesting thing to do with tournament books is to write a book on the history of a particular tournament, like those masterpieces and dramas of the Soviet championships. Mm -hmm. You get like 10, you know, you get like 30 pages on each tournament and it's a lot of anecdotes and stories and drama and a few key games and positions, you know, and so on. Whereas here in this book, you get the real, classical tournament book, like every single move of every game is dissected, right? That's the classic. But nowadays that's happening, you know, 
on broadcasts, right? Where you've got top players and engines dissecting every move of every game in, in real time. Not to this depth, of course, but still it sort of takes up that space a little bit. So now it's more interesting to read a book that tells you about what's the history of Vikonze or, um, you know, the Soviet championship or um, something, you know, something more along those lines. Yeah. And that's what Agard said. Um, he said when, vis-a-vis vis publishing these books in the future. He said, when I saw the book on the 2020 to 21 candidates, I like my own magazine articles better. I think that's the appropriate format. So even if you set aside any bias about his own magazine articles, which are quite good in his defense, um, then the idea that, yeah, these can be covered in real time or at minimum in like a magazine, which I guess you could subsequently turn into a book. But anyway, I mean, the bottom line is we know why, um, why these books aren't selling as well. But we do want to share a bit more about these books, uh, whether you will ultimately decide to purchase it or um, if this is your substitute for the book. Uh, there's some great memorable quotes, as as Chris said. The the chess is very fighting. There's some classic games. Um, I, I want to fair, share a few details about the uh, intro and the preface. One thing from Nigel Short's uh, intro, it's funny to read it here in 2023 because he basically just ravages FIDE. <laughs> Throughout the, the uh, more things change, right? The more things change, yeah, <laughs> the more they except, stay the same, right? Except now he works for them, so he's he's like uh, lampooning their disorganization and talking about uh, you know the um, how the prize fund could have been better and, and uh, stuff like that. Um, but but I guess he's left. But I mean, very recently uh, was then on the other side of uh, the ledger. But um, Here's a quote from what he wrote. He asked, when people question why FIDE has been incapable of attracting major corporate sponsorship over the last decade or so, they need look no further than the regulations of the World Championship with its massive institutionalized gravy train for their answers. No serious company is going to tolerate such waste. So I can't say I disagree, but, but uh, it was funny to read since he's a uh, Subsequently, his roles changed. And then uh, Mihail Marin, of course, wrote a nice and poetic, uh, some nice words in uh, his preface. He says he was talking about how excited he was to be going to this historic event. He'd come to terms with the fact that obviously he's a grandmaster, but not going to be playing on the biggest stage like these players are, but he's there to assist you to Polgar. And he writes, I was going to breathe the same air as the strongest players in the world to measure my strength against them against them in the background analytical contest. But what thrilled me most was the possibility of watching close up from a very favorable angle, the birth of a new world champion to understand these details that made a decisive difference between the Titans of similar strength. Um, and one thing they say that does make a difference is uh, both Marin and then later in the book, they just write about how relaxed uh, Topalov was. Um, it's, it's funny to funny to see. They, they talk about how like, a lot of the players, obviously, before the rounds would decamp to their rooms and be like prepping intensely. And Topalov would come down and have breakfast and then just be like chilling in the lobby, like relaxing, talking to people before the round and then just like summarily crush people. So, again, might have contributed very suspicious, to very suspicious. isn't Exactly. It? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I, I, I love that passage you read from from Marin. And I, I sort of, you know, I, I feel the same way. I visited a couple of world championship matches over the years and it really does feel like you're in a special place and you're somehow like breathing some history or something like I many here. They literally were all breathing the same air in that, you know, in that same dining room and, and so on the whole time. But I, you know, I, I sort of get this, you can sort of feel the history happening or something when, when, when you're there. Um, 
And I also sympathize with what Nigel Short wrote, because when you hold the world championship of a sport in sort of these obscure locations, um, that does not help in getting corporate sponsorship, which has historically been a problem for chess ever since the very beginning. There was never a time when chess had continuous, ongoing, high-level corporate sponsorship the way you know soccer or uh, you know any other sport does. I, I don't. I don't think. Um, yeah. Somehow it survives. Somehow it survives, and and even you know, well, I don't want to say it prospers, but you know, it certainly seems to be prospering now more than more than in a lot of times. And just despite the fact that Nike is not sponsoring chess or, you know, or right. butter beer companies or whatever, you know? Yeah. But even now, I mean, where you have, I feel like there's often good corporate sponsorship for the online events. There's Twitch streamers signing with uh, streaming companies, uh, stuff like that. The actual world championship, which does get again to uh, Nigel's comments, the actual world championship uh, does have some trouble. And, um, he talks about how, like, when he got there, first of all, he talks about, like, the rickety plane ride there. Um, but then when he got there, they had him, like, in- examine the conditions of the match, make sure the bathrooms are in close proximity, tough stuff like that. And um, he was saying, like, shouldn't shouldn't this stuff have been done before the tournament? Like, you know, it's starting tomorrow. There's not much we can do about it at this point. And it is a valid point, and it is uh, emblematic. Yeah. Well, and again, who can, who can forget that at the candidates' tournament, in 2018, I believe, uh, Alexander Grishuk supposedly had a bottle, you know, for, to substitute for the bathroom, although apparently that was not actually what he was using it for. But <laughs> the, bathrooms were, the bathrooms are a perennial source of complaint and nobody, some of these organizers don't seem to realize that it's important to be able to go in the middle of the, the game. Maybe what's going on partly is that the wor- chess world is like the only sport where it moves the championship like to some random place in the world every two years or something like that. All other sports, it's like a regular tour. Everything's in the same place every every time and so on. Maybe, maybe we're handicapping ourselves by, you know, by having it newly freshly done every, you know, every cycle or something like that. Um, maybe there should be longer term deals or whatever, but you know, what's what, what is consistent long-term is that we always seem to have tournaments like this. Uh, you know, they seem to come up, you know, from time to time for one reason or another. And we haven't, we have more of them now than, 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 than ever before actually. So tournaments like, uh, like, yeah, like the t- tournaments where you have so many strong players playing each other at once. Like if you if you look back at like the old great tournament books, one of the reasons why they're the great tournament books is that there weren't that many great tournaments back then. Right. So New York t- 1924 was the the only great tournament of 1924 probably. But now we have like Anze and then we have something in Germany and then we have something in St. Louis. And we, we're spoiled nowadays, you know, um, for this kind of stuff. Yeah. And obviously don't don't even that doesn't even get into all the online stuff. Um, right. Yeah. Never mind that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, Chris, we're going to take one more break. I mean, among other topics, we still need to discuss the cheating scandal, um, wrap up the book. And then, of course, since Chris is here, we're also going to uh, hear a bit about his upcoming book and his recent uh, OTB chess. Uh, so we will be right back. Perpetual Chess is brought to you in part by AimChess.com. AimChess has an algorithm that gathers your games from the major chess playing sites like Chess.com and Lee Chess, and then gives you actionable intel on how to improve your game. It evaluates different phases of the game, tells you how you're doing with certain openings, and they're constantly rolling out new features to make Aim Chess even better. Some of the new ones include a blunder preventer drill that you can do, and they've now got blindfold exercises where you can work on your chess 
best visualization skills. So be sure to check out Aim Chess if you have not already. And if you decide to subscribe, then use the code PERPETUAL30 to save 30%. You can also click on the link in the show description to aimchess.com. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. And we are back. And since we're audio only, of course, we won't discuss the games too much. But there are some some crazy games, some some real barn burners. And again, because of the opening choices, uh, you get a lot of wide open games, a lot of back and forth affairs. Um, so, so Chris, do you do you have any games that you uh, found of particular interest? I do, and there are so many good games that I thought I would. It's hard to pick out which ones are the best, although a couple of really stand out in my mind. So I. Um, I, I had heard about this new feature in Chessbase 17 where it tells you how beautiful a game is. Oh, right. So I asked my 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 coach, uh, Eric Kislik, who's a Chessbase uh, uh, whiz, to tell me what Chessbase thought were the were the best games. And it's not just like the editors of Chessbase. They have some algorithm that sort of, you know, tries to process the game. So it's like, it's kind of like asking ChatGPT to, to, tell, to tell you what you should believe and so on. I had him ask Chessbase and... Uh, they give three, two, and one star for beauty. And the the, the, the three-star game was the game we, uh, where uh, Judith Polgar was white against Kazimjanov. And it's one of those um, Sicilians where, like, white sacrifices a piece very early on and gets and gets this long-term attack. It's not sort of an immediate, you know, payoff. It's a, lot of, a long-term attack with pressure and um, a really beautiful win by um, by Judith. That's the only three-star game of the, of the tournament. But there's one game in the tournament that made – the mammoth book of the greatest chess games of all time, which we've talked about before, which is um, the the win by Anand against Adams, which is a great attacking game in the Royal Lopez. So one Sicilian, one Royal Lopez. The Royal Lopez is the second most common opening in this uh, in this tournament, which um, which makes sense. Uh, and um, uh, the other one, I guess, I would mention is um, uh, well, I mentioned two others. One is Kazim Janov's win against. Um, Polgar, so uh, revenge um, in a later uh, uh, in a later round, um, which is a, another amazing win in the Sicilian. It's a, it's amazing how how much risk these these people were taking back in two thousand and five. No Catalans, yeah. not too many Slavs, and Queen's Gambit declines, and uh, no one B three and uh, and and all that. Um, and then um, the last one is the very first game in the tournament. Well, it's a very first game in the book, but it was a game in the first round where. Um, uh, Topala played the Sicilian as black. He played the Knight Arf, which was his his thing. You know, I think the I think the book calls it his pet opening or something like <laughs> that. The annotations against um, uh, against uh, uh, Peter Leco, and it's a very back and forth game. And Leco could have won. I mean, he had a, a clear win at one point in the game. Didn't find it, and it's no, it's not some crazy engine line. You know, that was only discovered later. It's right there, and it's, it's right there in the notes. And if that game had gone differently, the whole course of the tournament could have been could have been much different. Maybe maybe um, Topalov was so calm, cool, and collected because he had started winning early on. Right. Uh, and uh, you know, since most of these things are won with a score of plus four or even plus three, you know, once he had built up 
that kind of lead, he that might have, you know, well, I guess it could make some people more nervous and anxious, but it might have might have helped him realize he had a little bit of a, you know, a cushion um, as well. But that, those are those are all great games. There's so many good ones. One of the funny things the, the annotators say at some point is that um, uh, Morozevich played the French in one game against Anand, which is a crazy draw, uh, repetition draw, which is really interesting. They say maybe Morozevich played the French because he was tired out from the wild Petrov of the round before. <laughs> And at first, I thought that was at first I thought that was a joke. Um, the Petrov was played five times in this tournament, which was I think the third most common opening. But I look back at that game, and yes, it was a wild <laughs> it was a wild Petrov. So even the Petrovs were wild in this uh, in this tournament. Um, uh, and uh, th- there are a lot of games that are worth just playing through, even if you don't want to play through all the notes. Just read the words, uh, you know, and then look at the you know the the main lines they give or something like that. Um, so many so many good games. Yeah, the authors had a quote. Luckily for us, there are not many fans of the Petrov in the tournament, while there are Sicilian Istas of every kind. So <laughs> that's why I was able to get your trivia question, although the harder one would have been like which version of the Sicilian was uh, was was most prevalent. Yeah. Uh, but there were, yes. of, there were a lot of Nidorfs. There were a lot of Nidorfs. So it's, yeah, uh, for sure. Nidorf and Sveshnikov, I think, are the two main candidates. Yeah. But I, I think Nidorf probably would be the uh, the winner, which obviously makes uh, for some entertaining chess. Yeah. Um, the, yeah. The other thing, I guess another thing I would say about the, the way the game analysis is done and they, they start with something interesting, which I haven't seen in all of their tournament books like this, which is a sort of a historical analysis of the encounters between all the pairs of players. So with, with eight players, there are 28 pairs and they review like the record of each player against each other, against each other player and some like highlights of their recent games, including like the most recent ones before the tournament. So what would have been on their mind? Well, the last game they played, you know, this person lost to that person or, uh, you know, something like that. It's a very it's, it's a lengthy but sort of unique, you know, preamble to the book, which maybe takes the place of some of the some of the stuff that's um that's missing. So it's sort of the, it's so much into the chess that it's hard to find some details in the book. Like what were the dates that they played right. these games on and what were the dates of the rounds and when was their arrest day? Like, it would be nice if there was like a, I didn't notice a chronology or something like that. Or um, yeah, the, the sort of history leading up to the event, like how the tournament wound up being there and so on that you have to sort of learn that from like reading about shorts complaints about FIDE and, <laughs> and so on, as opposed to from the authors of the, um, uh, of, of, of the book. And, and the authors are so elusive that there's no about the authors yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I didn't think about that. You know, like usually, usually pretty standard. So um, uh, it's really relentlessly like on you know the chess. And fortunately, the games were you know were for the most part so good. Even the twenty four move draws are really you know are, are fairly you know fairly interesting. And there yeah. aren't too many. <laughs> yeah, I would say that I wish that there would be an updated edition. You know, with like a bit more historical context. You know, I've talked before about how someone needs someone should write a book about the the deunification of FIDE from the 1990s through this period through 2006 um and that could be the forward <laughs> to, to yeah. this you know the prelude to this book and then you could update it with with you know some more engine comments and stuff but given what we've already said about the uh unpopularity of tournament books um unfortunately I don't think we should uh, hold our breath well, that's such a drama that that could be just like a regular nonfiction book without any diagrams or moves in it at all with all yeah. the personalities. Like if someone like, you know, that, that book like Bobby Fisher goes to war and so on. There's some interesting, just pure nonfiction narrative books about some of these interesting chess episodes that that could be one of them right there. Yeah. Yeah. 
there is a book on the, um, there's sort of a book on the beginning of that. There's a book on the uh, Kasparov short match in 1993, which was the first non-FIDE world championship match written by Dominic Lawson, who's a British journalist, which is uh, very much um, like that. And he, you know, he talks to a lot of the people involved and so on. So it's very much like a journalistic account of that whole, of that whole thing. Yet another book that's sitting on road on my shelf. Is that one called Endgames? Does it have the same name as the Brady book? Same title as Brady's biography of Bobby Fischer. So it's such such a good, I can see all the editors at all the, you know, the New York publisher saying, oh, Endgame, what a great name for a chess book, you know. (laughs) Right. Used a few times, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, so this is not that, you know, th- th- this is not that book, but it's, it's, it's not like it's all like moves and informative symbols. Like there's tons of like textual discussion of the positions and so on, which is really good. Yeah. And descriptions of, uh, the sort of, um, continents, the way the people were sitting and yeah, the, they talk a lot about the nerves of the players. They, they say at some point, um, nervous player, nervous struggles took place on every board. Even the extraordinary calm Anand could not stand the stress. And I think that also, in addition to the openings, as you say, being such fighting choices, like that contributed to sort of some up and down games. But also from what the authors said, I mean, it just sounded like, uh, you know, the stage was so big. I mean, it's a, a tournament for the world championship, even though now we may look back at it as a semi world championship semi candidates, although Topalov's name is on the list of world champions and he was certainly uh not the weakest world champion um so it certainly belongs there but anyway i mean um the fact that the players uh, like the dis- the description of the heightened tension uh i also found enjoyable yeah for sure they they do take a, a fairly psychological view of you know of things in that you know in that way as well yeah and I had a f- another quote from Agard to share, because getting back to what we were saying about this not being um, the the first book you would choose as something educational, um, you, you had submitted a question for him, Chris, which I appreciated was, uh, would he recommend that someone use this book to improve their own games? And what he said is, on that on those notes, he said, I think you can learn a lot about how to win tournaments and the dangers you face. He mentioned Nigel Short's book, Winning. Um, he said, but the games themselves are fabulously instructive. Well-annotated games are always educational, um, which, yeah, I agree with. It's just, you know, we, we're all, we're always, there's so many books in so little time that it's, uh, that I recommend picking this book, but neither of us had read it. So that speaks for itself. I'm looking forward to winning more tournaments now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think I might need more than one book for, for, for that. Um, um, so any other things to note from the book before we get to the cheating of it all, Chris? <laughs> um, uh, I think it really, I don't think anyone will, you know, if, if anyone buys this book, I, I don't really know if it's still in print, but I'm sure you can still get it. If anyone buys it or acquires it somehow, I don't think you'll ever regret having it in your collection. You might rather regret like not finding the time to study it or something like that. Um, so if you can handle that dissonance, like being proud of having a book and yet not disgusted with yourself for not having read it and studied it, then you should definitely have this because I, I do think it's one of the best tournament books of all time. Um, I think it's uh, it's up there with, I mean, Zurich 1953 is very controversial, of course, but you know, certainly people, people, people love it. And it, it meant a lot to me when I read it, but I think it's up there with like the match of the century and um, the second Piotrgorski cup is another one. And, uh, New York 1924 people like a lot. Um, it's, it's, it's real, it's really right up there with the the best ones. Yeah. I know, uh, esteemed 
chess historian Douglas Griffin is a big fan of uh, Kavalik's Vikingsay 1975. Uh, that's another one I haven't, but would like to read. Uh, but just checking Amazon, it looks like you can still get it. Uh, it's even, if anything, maybe it's come down a bit in price. It looks like you can get it for 25 to 30 bucks. So I oh, agree. Um, wor- worth worth having to collect dust on your shelf with uh, with <laughs> with the other uh, tournament classics. Although if you can find the time to read it, um, all the better. And you so, can you can get a lot out of it without going through all the variations. So don't be daunted by the fact that there are like seven pages on every game. You can actually go through it, you know, without playing out all the variations, and you you won't be like cheating yourself somehow. Yeah, and again, with with the games being in Elite Chess Study, it's an easy way to play through it. Did you actually use a set for this, uh, Chris? No, I used I, I used a study. I I made that study by by uh, getting the games from another. Oh, you did it yourself. Oh, thanks. Thanks yes. for doing that. <laughs> um, I got the games from another source and put them all in there cause I couldn't find one that already had them. So I just made, I made one cause I figured it would be easier. And I, I, I had ambitions to do things like run them through the Lee chess engine and see sort of what the accuracy scores were and so on. But, but I think Lee chess like blocked me after I did too many games in a row like that or something like that. But I did find that Topolov played very accurately in the, in the first five rounds at least. Um, and not surprisingly, and, um, some of his opponents played, played less well, but, I, you know, to, to lead into the next topic, um, that's, I think, a, just a common sort of post hoc fallacy that once someone points to someone and says that person is suspicious, and then you look back and say, oh, they played very accurately. Well, nobody would have thought they were cheating unless they were playing well in the first place. Right. <laughs> right. So you're, you're, it's a circular line of, 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 of reasoning. Yeah. And uh, obviously with echoes of uh, recent controversies, um yeah, and they they discuss the cheating allegations. Marin discusses them a little bit in the intro, and then they have like a separate epilogue where where they talk about it. So, I mean, basically, what you need to know if you haven't read the book is that uh, one thing that made people suspicious, and they don't name the player who made the primary accusation. Although, if you do some internet sleuthing, um, you can. Uh, make an educated guess, but then they say a few people were suspicious. Um, but one thing they say that was suspicious was that he sat at the same table every day. Um, so that they're thinking that if there's some sort of signaling coming from his team, which um, they don't actually say how the cheating would have taken place again with uh, echoes of uh, modern times. But if there were some sort of signaling, I guess maybe that would make it easier, but then they do discuss the relative quality of the games. Um, and, Yes, there. Yes, he played the highest standard in the tournament, but there also were again were some up and down affairs where he wasn't just playing computer moves. There was a a game where he missed a for for twenty seven hundred standards, uh, an easy win, and he even had a rating jump. I mean, he wasn't a teenager like Hans Niemann, but uh, Topalov even had a rating jump. So yeah, it was especially in light of recent events. It was really interesting to read about these accusations. Uh, yeah, they have a very interesting short, but very interesting and detail-packed epilogue about this. And I, I think they take, the, these authors take an appropriately um, skeptical view towards um, allegations of cheating based on the quality of the performance. Um, and I think one reason why people, well, usually there's some reason outside of the the chest that leads people to suspect that. And in the more recent cases, I don't, I guess we're not naming names, but there have been previous suspicions, previous admissions, um, you know, so on. Um, but, uh, people seem to, I, I think people discount the amount of variability there can be in performance. Like just as people can have horrible, you know, runs of horrible games, they can also have runs of really great games. And a lot depends on the circumstances and, 
you have different opponents. So it's, it's, it's sort of like rolling, you know, flipping five heads in a row or something like that, you know, like that, that's going to happen one out of 32 times. It's not an unheard of, you know, it's not an unheard of event. Um, now, of course, one would say like, oh, well, there's 40 moves in every game and that's, you know, and so on. But of course the moves are not all uniformly perfect. And as the, as they note in the epilogue, um, if you want to test someone's games, to, to see whether they're somehow sort of too perfect or too engine-like or whatever, you, you've also got to observe the fact that when when those people couldn't possibly have been cheating <laughs> or when they were much lower strength, they played games that were equally as impressive every so often. So, you know, as, as I believe they observe, it's, it's more sort of the consistency that maybe changes than, um, you know, than the play. Like Topolov was always capable of playing these games. He's He managed to string together, you know, a, a lot in a row. Um, it, it, the, the reading about this reminded me ju- just today, as we were getting ready to, to, to record this, of uh, a recent paper in cognitive psychology that I saw. Well, it's recent; it's eight years ago, but in you know, in the world of science, eight years ago is is recent. Um, where uh, the authors um, the authors pointed out that what we normally think of as a learning curve, you know, normally we imagine that sort of people get better smoothly at something, and you know, the, the longer they work on it, the better they get. And of course it plateaus eventually, right? You first, you first, you get better quickly and then you sort of, you slow down, but you sort of keep on getting better. But there's only a curve of learning when you average together a lot of people's learning experiences and the way their performance changes over time. If you look at individual pe- players or athletes or, you know, people doing any kind of task, what's, what's more likely is they sort of, they have an upward curve for a little while and then they flatten out. And then there's like a discontinuity where they start a new curve and go up. So it's like plateaus and climbs and plateaus and climbs. And the plateaus can get longer as you go, you know, as you go along, as you get better and better. It seems like, you know, it's fair to think that players who in retrospect maybe are thought of as potential cheaters or otherwise, you know, cheaters and yeah, to use the, you know, to use the, the bluntest word um, might be just having a pattern of performance, which is, um, which is not really all that unexpected. It's just not what people, well, I shouldn't say that. It's not what people expect, but it's not illegitimate. It's actually reflects, you know, act the actual way people improve. We don't get, you know, 0.001% better at chess every day, right? We, you know, we stay the same for a while and then something's happening in our mind and, and also with the rest of our bodies and our lives and so on. And then we're able to sort of make a new, a new jump. Sometimes people talk about conceptual reorganization. You sort of like have somewhat different way of thinking about things. And I don't see any reason to think that that's not what happened with a player like Topalov. I, I don't know him. I don't know exactly what happened, but the kind of evidence that people have offered is really weak. I mean, much weaker than they realize, I think. Yeah. I mean, unless there's like more to the story that's not presented in the book, it just seemed like total speculation. Um, I mean, his rating gain, just for context, they say in the uh, epilogue, he his rating stayed relatively the same from 1996 to 2003. And then he went from 2730 to 2800 in about two years. And But that's including this tournament, which obviously contributed a decent amount. Um, age-wise, um, he was uh, he was about 30 uh, by 2005. So um, still narrowly on the right side of the aging curve um, in terms of uh, what, what little we know about like peak performance in chess. Um, so yeah, I just, I just didn't remember, see, remember every time someone says peak performances at this year, that means on average, right? you know, like there are people who are in better shape, who have d- different genes, who have different backgrounds and so on. They might peak later or earlier. I mean, we all know there've been some players who peaked very early and then they've been flat forever, you know, and there could be all kinds of reasons for that, right. Um, a flat or declining forever. So those are, 
th- those are not enough evidence. Like you, if you were making a circumstantial case in a trial, you would need like so many pieces of evidence like that. And you need to show that those things were so unlikely to happen in combination, right? That this is like a one in a million, you know, or one in, you know, a, and that becomes, those kinds of arguments become very tricky to make statistically because you really need to know like how likely it is that these things can happen and happen in combination. And um, I, I would much rather have like, uh, you know, some video and eyewitnesses and unimpeachable sources, you know, actually explain exactly what was going on. Like you say, like, where was the information coming from? You know, what did the yogurt flavors mean? Right. <laughs> what was in the chair when they x-rayed it or whatever, like something more tangible than it's suspicious that he played so well in this tournament after, you know, only being a 2730 for, you know, for a few years or something like that. That just, I don't think that's, I mean, it's not, doesn't happen every day. You wouldn't have picked a 2730 player to win the tournament, but anyone could have won this tournament. Yeah. Yeah. And someone has to. And the, yeah. the authors wrote, uh, one could say Anand and Leco played below their normal strength in this tournament. And that's true. But Topalov's play over the past 1.5 years, this is at the time of the tournament has been the best. So the tournament did not reveal any great secret. Um, yeah. That's another thing is also you, your opponents often have to cooperate for you to have a great tournament. And sometimes a lot of them cooperate. Right. right? Yeah. You know, love Caruana. He went seven and zero and eight and a half, you know, out of 10, but you know, probably his opponents didn't play as many, you know, great moves as they normally do. That's, that, that's how you win games. Often your opponents don't play the best moves. Yeah. And they ended on a poetic note in, in their epilogue. Uh, and again, I, f- I feel like the authors did a great job. Uh, I don't know if I'd go so far as saying debunking because we never know 100%, but the bottom line is there's no evidence. Uh, so they say, we would like to end this book with the hope that in, f- in the future, chess will attract the crowds with its with its beauty rather than by foolish conspiracy theories. Which, <laughs> so prophetic. Yeah, exactly. Very, very ironic to, to read that today. And, and it gets to the Neiman story. I mean, not to rehash it too much, but part of me still wonders um, because to me, uh, my opinions haven't changed from when I was covering it uh, regularly um, that there, there's just not compelling evidence. I've talked to people who know Hans who say, you know, I wouldn't rule it out that, that he cheated. Um, it's uh, entirely possible, but there's no evidence. So the only thing I cling to is like, maybe someone told Magnus of something they witnessed um, and he just doesn't feel like he can say it due to the legal constraints. Um, and I'm not necessarily talking about the Sinkfield Cup in particular, because I still find it uh really even it strains credulity even more than general OTB cheating accusations that he cheated uh, in St. Louis at that tournament. But I still, there's part of me that wonders maybe Magnus did get a f- reliable firsthand account that he's unable to relay. But see, when I say that, that's so much hearsay, you know? So it's, it's, um, it's it sounds like it's speculation of hearsay or something. Yeah, like. exactly. <laughs> but that's um, the only way that like everyone's behavior on the accusation side is justifiable in my mind. I'm a Magnus fan, but we have, there's a tendency to sort of assume that someone who's great at one thing or the greatest at one thing is, is sort of omniscient in other things. And I don't think he's any, you know, he's probably better at figuring out who's cheating in chess than almost anybody else in chess, but he's not perfect. And it's possible that he's wrong in this case. And he has emotions just like anybody else. And he can be flustered and um, you know, he can, you know, when there are, when, if there are things in his mind, like, you know, Hans is kind of a jerk. Hans beat me twice in two months, one time in the rapid tournament, the month before in Miami, one time at the Sinkfield cup. And that was with black, both, uh, sorry, with, with black, um, 
uh, both times, I believe. Um, no, sorry, black one time, white one time. Um, and, you know, everybody knew. I mean, a lot of people knew, let's put it this way, that he had cheated online before. He definitely had cheated before, you know, online. Um, and I agree with, I, I, I disagree with the people who say online cheating is nothing. You right. know, that's important. Like, you, you're not supposed to cheat online or anywhere else. You're not supposed to do it twice in a row. You're not supposed to do it when you're 15 or 16 or whatever. But of course, you're, you know, you won't understand as well when you're, when, when you're younger, you know, often. Um, but that's, you know, there are a lot of other people who have cheated online. And there are a lot of other people about whom there are rumors. And I don't think that's, you know, I don't think that's enough. Um, it's funny how there were some of this, people find the same signs, though. Like, and I, I understand why they do. Like people, Magnus, I think, said that Hans just seemed too relaxed during right. their game, like almost like he had like, didn't, you know, like he stopped preparing, you know, and had a calm breakfast, you know, before like, like <laughs> yeah, exactly. or something like that, you know, or whatever, like he didn't, you know, he didn't seem to be paying attention. Um, uh, you know, it's all something, but it's not, it's, it's not enough. And, and I you sort of don't, I mean, my feelings about this change every time I see some new information, but I sort of don't blame Magnus as much as I blame all the people who sort of jumped on it and having, got the hypothesis, you know, Hans is an inveterate cheater. They started doing all kinds of, I don't want to say bogus, but, you know, invalid analyses of his previous play without appropriate comparisons, without understanding even what the numbers were that they were looking at or where they came from. David Smerden and Jonathan Rousen, I think, reviewed all this very well with you in your interviews with them at the time. It was all pretty apparent to people who knew what was going on, um, you know, that all of this so-called evidence and these YouTube videos that everyone was passing around, you know, di didn't really prove, um, didn't really prove anything. Um, and you know, there have been, there, there have been real cheaters in high level tournaments like the Olympiad and, you know, and so on. There's Igor's Rousis, you know, there's the French guy from the Olympia. I mean, th th this is like a serious problem. Like, I'm not trying to downplay it at all. It's a serious problem. And, you know, I just finished writing a whole book, co-authoring co a whole book, essentially, about cheating and, uh, you know, and, and so on. So it's it's a it's a serious problem, but um, it's, it's equally serious to do a bad um, investigation, I think, of, of such uh, allegations. Well said. We're we're on the same page. So so did the Neiman story make it into your book, Chris? Uh, I think we had finished the book. Like we had finished the first draft right when it came out. So um, we talk about other some other cheating stuff and in, in chess and so on. And I think we had to add a. Um, I think we had to mention it in a in a, in a footnote. It, it really was it all in that one case was every element of you know the the, the topic of you know. Uh, how people think about allegate situations like this and how people weigh the evidence. Like it was a, it was a, you know, you could do a master class about like how, you know, how, how to make decisions about things like this and, and how people think um, uh, about topics like this. And I, you know, maybe we'll get back into it in the future or something like that. That would be fun. And we have a question from Brian Karen of the aforementioned uh, Facebook uh, chess book collectors group which is, has your expertise in cognitive psychology helped you as a chess player? It probably has, but probably not as much as I wish it had. Um, I, I I did acquire some naive ideas about chess from reading the cognitive psychology literature about chess. So um, when I first got into um, 
Well, I first got interested in psychology because I was interested in computer science and artificial intelligence. And then that sort of moved me into like how humans think from how computers might think. it. And this was, of course, artificial intelligence back in the 80s, not what we think of now as artificial intelligence. Um, and, you know, one of the main theories in, in, in cognitive psychology about expertise at the time was that the experts have this massive repertoire of these little patterns, um, you know, chunks they were sometimes called, but they're sort of like little patterns of things on the chessboard, like the Fianchetto Bishop and, you know, the locked pawn chain and, you know, pieces attacking other pieces and so on. And somehow the way, you know, what made experts different from other players is the experts would sort of see these patterns and recognize the configurations and unconsciously think of what were good moves to play. And there's some truth in that. Um, like if you see, you know, if you have a, a pawn on H5 and your opponent has a bishop fianchettered on G2 with pawns on H2 and G3, you think H4, like we must we must bust open the king position, but you don't even think about that. You just think H4 is a candidate move that occurs to you, right? And, and, and part of being good at chess, I think, is automatically thinking of the right candidate moves, which is a lot of that kind of pattern recognition. But I think I overestimated that and I didn't realize how important it was to think more abstractly um, in chess. So I, I think I... And, and, and also how important it was to train it as a skill. Like I, it sort of felt to me more like a knowledge-based thing than a skill-based thing. And of course we all realize now and all the top trainers say, you know, you've got to keep on, you know, you've got to keep on doing your tactics and your calculation and, and all that kind of stuff. You, um, if only I had trained, you know, on chess back when I was doing all this stuff, I would be, you know, a better, a better player now, you know? So I think it has, it has its pros and it has its pros and its, uh, and, and its cons, and, you know, but also not just cognitive psychology, but psychology and understanding skill and variability in performance, like I was talking about before, I think it has maybe helped me not be so upset about the most recent performance. Like I used to get really upset if I would lose a game to a really low rated player. I would think, oh, I can't play this game anymore, you know, but then, well, that was one game, you know, like there's much more variability than we realize. And it gets greater as we get older, like a variability gets more as we get oh, older. Oh, interesting. Um, I'm going to definitely well, tell myself that. That's the next time. Well, that's a subjective experience. I think it, it might not be that we can like have more great peaks, but we're more subject to having like a, a, a big low and it can be based on physiological things, right? Like not enough caffeine, not enough sleep. Those things affect us, I think, more, you know, as we get older. So it becomes more important to manage that aspect of things. And that's not cognitive psychology, but I think understanding sort of like how skill changes over, um, over the lifespan and the factors that affect skilled performance and so on does help a little bit put things into perspective when you're actually in it yourself, kind of like maybe having a sports psychologist, you know, to work with you if you, if, you know, if, if you were an athlete or something. That's fascinating. And, and did you just, I know you, so once you finished your book, you played at least one tournament. Did you play more than one or just the one in uh, Maryland? Uh, just one so far. So I hadn't played in a classical tournament in uh, 18 months myself. And, um, uh, my son had taken a little a break of about five or six months because he had soccer season. So we went and played in one of Ken Regan's great, uh, Maryland tournaments, the Baltimore open. And, um, uh, I actually, I held off the kids for a while. Um, but then, uh, on the third day, you know, rounds four and five, those are the killers, uh, and, um, had a really interesting, well, I, I drew with an international master with black, which was nice, a very, um, very nice guy, strong player. Um, and then, uh, unfortunately I, I, I lost as black in a very interesting night orf. Um, and then in the final round, uh, my biggest blunder was driving past Dunkin' Donuts on the way back to the game in the final round and not stopping and getting a big coffee. Right. Um, so the biggest blunder was made before the game. Nonetheless, I achieved a good position, but it just sort of fell apart and time pressure and, 
uh, it wound up about, uh, you know, with an even score and not losing, not losing too many rating points. So, you know, if that's how I was doing after 18 months, I'm going to take that as a positive. Like after an 18 month break, I, you know, I played some good moves and I didn't, you know, I didn't have any total disasters. Um, so we're playing, we're going to play again in, uh, end of February and I'm, you know, really want this time period to be one where I can try to play like a tournament a month and just see what happens. Like, yeah. you know, as, as, as Eric, uh, as Eric Kislik and others remind us playing games, especially classical games is actually the best form of training. Um, so, uh, I'm going to see if I can follow that, take that advice to heart and see what happens if I can do it for a few months in a row and, uh, which I haven't been able to put together, you know, recently. So wish me luck. Yeah. Good luck. I mean, I, I struggle with it too, because I just getting back into it in the past couple of years, that was my main realization is that playing, as you say, playing is the training. It's the one thing that, uh, because so much of chess is like decision management, uh, that, that that's where you get the practice at that. And that's where I actually remember, uh, the, the lessons imparted as opposed to stuff online. Um, my last tournament was pretty bad. The kids got me for sure. A couple bad openings and they played really well. Um, so I really shouldn't like, I lost a bunch of rating, but really like, if you look at the quality of the games, I, I shouldn't have too much to be upset about, but it's, it still stings. And then the other thing, Chris, of course, as we were talking about before we're recording is now I'm working on a book. So I'm afraid I'm going to lose some momentum. Um, I'm playing in Alto in Charlotte. If anyone listening, uh, is going, uh, please come say hi. Um, that, so I'll play that in March. But other than that, I'm, my current thinking is, uh, I'll be, um, inactive for the most part until I get this, this book completed. Well, there's only so much time in the day and the week and, and the month and, and so on, right? The great, I'm sure I've said this before, but the great thing about chess is that somehow like so much of it stays in our mind that we can like not play for nine months while we're finishing a book and come back. And although we're a little worse, it doesn't feel like we're doing something different, you know, and it feels like we can sort of pick up where we left off and in, to a large extent we can, and we can regain our level, you know, and maybe, you know, maybe get better. That's the beautiful thing about chess compared to like some other, you know, performance-based, you know, sports or skills or whatever, where, uh, you know, you can, um, you know, your, your fitness matters a lot more and your, uh, you know, strength and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's really just a matter of getting a few tournaments back under you when you come back. I think You have to be willing to accept the consequences for a little while, you know, and I was <laughs> right. I was ready yeah. for the consequences at this last tournament and they weren't as bad as I, as I feared. So, you know, let's see how, let's see if, let's see if I can, if, if, if I can keep going. Glad to hear it. Well, Chris, when your book comes out, of course, I'm looking forward to reading it and uh, we'll have to do a proper interview. We've been doing so many book reviews. It's time for you to, to relax and just be interviewed <laughs> in a, come, what is it? July? Did I say? Is yes. It, it comes I'm, out on July 11th. Everybody can pre-order on your favorite place where you can uh, get books. And um, there is some stuff about chess in there, but also a lot of other things I think people interested in chess would find interesting also. Okay. Excellent. And again, it is called Nobody's Fool. Um, well, as we wrap up, Chris, anything to add, uh, whether about uh, San Luis 2005 or uh, chess generally? Um. I guess the one thing I would say is that, uh, well, I really liked your episode with um, Karsten uh, Hansen going over the unappreciated books or whatever you, you call them. And it, it made me realize that there's so many good books coming out nowadays. We, we should we should do another interview just on like, what are the cool you know new books that, uh, that people aren't talking about? Because I see so many interesting ones. If, if you look at the quality chess publishing schedule, they're yeah. going to put out like 10 great books in the next year. Good luck, you know, <laughs> good luck to them getting all that done, you know, and, and so on. But, um, uh, I, I think, um, somehow it's a, 
golden age of chess books, even though supposedly nobody reads them anymore. So I don't quite understand how that works. People are still putting in a lot of effort making great chess books. Supposedly nobody reads them. It's a paradox for me, but I enjoy them. So I'm happy with it. Yeah, me too. But yeah, I did see that list. I know uh, Mauricio Flores Rios of Chess Structures Frame has a sequel coming out. Uh, as I mentioned, yes, as it's, I- it's the wrong sequel though. Like their chess structures doesn't have all the structures. Like I, I even emailed him after I read the book or like you know went through the book the first time, and I said, "What about this structure and that structure and that structure?" And he wrote back and said, "Yeah, maybe those are sort of important, but you know." And I, I think. Even, even more so today because like the openings that are played at the top level evolve more. So you need a chapter on like structures from the Nimzo Larson B3 opening, you know, and, and things like that. So um, maybe he'll get back to another uh, sequel to chess structures, but I am definitely looking forward to whatever it is that he's doing. He's a really interesting, interesting uh, guy, by the way, outside of, outside of chess. Yeah, I did get to interview him uh, once and hopefully I, you know, he and he is primarily ba- like working in outside of chess, uh, working in like analytics for Target. Last I heard in in Minnesota, um, but yep. uh, hopefully get to chat with with uh, Grandmaster Rios again. And um, and one last uh, book that I'm looking forward to. I mentioned this. I also speaking of book talk, did a dojo talks recently that uh, some of you listening may have heard. But you, if you search for Dojo Talks in the uh, podcast app, talked even more chess books with uh, Jesse Cry and Kostya Kavutsky and David Proust. But anyway, uh, Axel Smith is coming out with a positional version of the Woodpecker Method, apparently. So, uh, oh yeah, that'll be that'll be interesting. Also, like Learn from the Legends, Part Two. Speaking of uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, I know there's all kinds of great stuff. I know you you go around everywhere you can trashing my system. Yes, um, and <laughs> I did it there too. You're yeah. right. You know, you're, you're right, of course. Um, but the reason why you're right is that nowadays we have like a hundred other books which sort of can teach you the same and stuff. Of course, better. yeah. And that was the only book. Right. Yeah. No, it, <laughs> there were three books sort of you could get back then, right? You know, and that was that was one of them. So, and it was truly revolutionary. It's just that we don't, you know, we don't have to read it anymore. You know, we don't have to. We don't have to yeah. drive a state of the art car from 1938. You know, just. Yeah. That is another was- common. That's another common fallacy in, in in chess books that I see is people say like, "Oh, you you must start by reading Capablanca, and Lasker, and so on." And that's like saying like you have to learn you have to learn computer science by reading like what Turing wrote in the 1930s and what von Neumann wrote and so on. Nobody learns computer science that way. There's a little bit of history, but you you learn from the best way we you know we know we know now, and there's been so much improvement in how to teach chess and explain chess. And even our understanding of chess is, is actually much better than it was even for Capablanca and Alakine uh, and Imzovich and those guys. So it's a, it's a total sort of, it's like some kind of historical fallacy, like what was what was once great is forever great or something like that. Um, and chess has been around for so long, maybe that's why that sort of is fostered, whereas nobody wants to study like how they played soccer in 1910 or something like that, right? Like that wouldn't help you today. Yeah, no, it's it's a good point. But Chris, I'm glad I'm glad to have you agreeing with me on these points. Uh, I think uh, I think that's a good note to uh, to end on. But look forward to catching up uh, later this year, and uh, good luck with the book rollout, and of course uh, with your upcoming tournament and any other ones that come. All right, thank you very much. Look forward to being back sometime. Okay, and listeners, uh, I'll link, to, of course, to to Doctor Shabri's Twitter account and uh, anything else he tells me to. But um, but. Uh, Thanks again, and uh, thanks for listening. And uh, for listeners, as I alluded to, um, so these book recaps are not going away, but it might be a couple months before I get a, a few months, I should say, before I get around to another one. Uh, but hopefully uh, they'll become slightly more regular once my own book is done being written. Uh, okay, thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you, Chris, and goodbye. 
Thanks to everyone who helps make Perpetual Chess possible. Big shout out to my producer, Matthew Passy. I'd also like to thank the Blue Wire Podcast Network, with whom we are proud to be affiliated. Be sure to follow us on social media, Beneficial1 on Twitter, at Perpetual Chess on Instagram, and or you can join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group. You can email me, ben at perpetualchesspod.com. And of course, last but not least, I'd like to give major thanks to the Perpetual Chess Patreon and PayPal supporters. Those who choose to join that community based on their level of support can do things like submit questions for guests of the show, have access to live Zoom Q&A lectures with grandmasters who often have appeared on the show going over chess games, answering questions, stuff like that. And you can even get access to ad-free perpetual chess if that's your preference. So, but most of all, thanks to everyone for listening and we will catch you all on... Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.